Well, as far as the Anglican tradition goes, Trinity is a rather low church experience, which might be a surprise to a lot of you. But we don't have, you know, uh, people wearing choir robes when they're reading the scriptures and all those kinds of things. You're welcome, volunteers. Uh, we don't wear uh, vestments every single week. We don't uh, do, a, you know, we don't have incense. We don't do a lot of the really fancier kind of high church elements that are typical in a lot of Anglican churches. Um, and for some of you, again, this might come as a, as a surprise that Trinity is low church because most of us didn't come from Catholicism, didn't come from an Episcopal church, didn't come from a Lutheran church. Most of us in this room uh, came from a non-denominational church or a Baptist church or a Presbyterian church that didn't have kind of the formality of liturgy that we have here. And so if I was to put like a name on it, pin it, what is it that feels high church to many of us about Trinity? It's simply our organized prayers. It's the prayer of purity, the acclamation. It's the, the prayers of the people, the, the Eucharistic prayers. It's these prayers that we pray together, or I pray before you, or we pray in response to one another. That's what feels high church about our expression. And that's significant because in these more low church expressions of the faith, there's this uh, common assumption that extemporaneous prayer is somehow more valuable. It's more authentic. It's true to our hearts. And so we're being, we're being real before God when we pray extemporaneously. And that can be true, but if you've been a Christian for any significant amount of time, you've found yourself trying to pray and you have no words. And so to be authentic to yourself in that moment is to be prayerless. Or many times in our lives, to be authentic to ourselves would mean I'm so distracted by my worries, my anxieties, the swirl of chaos in my heart that I can't pray. And so there is a goodness to planned prayers. Here's what C.S. Lewis had to say about it. The advantage of a fixed form of service is that we know what's coming. Extempore public prayer has this difficulty. We don't know whether we can mentally join in until we've heard it. It might be phony or heretical. We are therefore called upon to carry on a critical and devotional activity at the same time. Two things hardly compatible. The rigid forms really set our devotions free. And that is the beauty of the Anglican tradition. The foundation of the Anglican church is one document all about prayer, the Book of Common Prayer. And the prayers are meant to set our devotions free, to free us up with words that we know are true and good and beautiful, with words that lead us into biblical truths that help us to know and love God better, especially in those seasons where we feel like we have no words to pray. That's the beauty of our tradition. But I, I bring all of this up, not because the Anglican church is awesome, I like it, uh, but because the prayer tradition, the, the prayer book tradition is actually really, really old. We didn't invent it. The Catholics didn't invent it. The people of Israel did. The Psalms are the original prayer book of our faith, not the Book of Common Prayer. And this summer, we're going to be in a sermon series on the Psalms. We're not going to have time to go through all 150, obviously, uh, but we're going to spend some time in the original prayer book of God's people. And we're going to see how the Psalms give us words that are true and good and beautiful that set our devotions free, that we can love God more 
that we can come to him with greater faith. That's what we're going to see in the Psalms this summer. So this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 1. Again, not because we're going to go through, you know, in order through the book of Psalms, uh, but because Psalm 1 is actually an introduction to the book of Psalms. It's going to tell us where we're going and set our expectations for the Psalms. So if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 1 with me. We're going to see three things today in our text. First, the Psalms are meant to lead us into devotion. Second, the Psalms are meant to lead us into true happiness. And finally, the Psalms are meant to lead us to Jesus. Now, before we read the text, uh, I want to try something this summer, and unfortunately, I'm recorded right now, so you'll be able to hold me to my word, uh, but I want to impress upon you all the importance of memorizing scripture, that there is goodness to having the word of God on your heart and mind. Like we were just saying, when you have the word of God memorized, you have words at hand to set your devotions free. And so it seems like kind of an old school idea, but I want to impress upon you, it's really good to memorize scripture. So I'm going to try to memorize the Psalms I preached this summer. So hopefully I can do it. <laughs> Psalm 1, follow along with me. Maybe I get a word wrong and you'll just have to call it out. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that is driven away by the wind. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous." For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the first thing we see in Psalm 1 this morning is that the Psalms as a whole book are meant to lead us into devotion. And so we need to zoom out a little bit. I want to give us a little background, a little introduction to the Psalms by looking at the context of Psalm 1 and the context of the whole book and then we'll look at some of the words of Psalm 1 that, that focus this emphasis on devotion. So first, what you notice about Psalm 1 is it doesn't have an introductory comment. It doesn't have a superscription. Many of them say a Psalm of David, or there's a, a Psalm of Moses, or a Psalm of Asaph. We don't have that here with Psalm 1 or Psalm 2. And that might not seem significant at first. There are a lot of psalms that don't have a superscription, but the vast majority do. 116 of the 150 psalms have a superscription. And the first book of the psalms, Psalms 1 through 41, all have a superscription saying they're a psalm of David, except for 1, 2, 10, and 33. Now, 10 and 33 look like they should be read alongside 9 and 32. So they kind of, you know, the superscription of those psalms applies. So what you see is the first book is all psalms of David except for 1 and 2. And that's keying you in that these are unique psalms set apart from the rest of the book. They are here uniquely. And again, that gives us the, leads us to a conversation about the bigger context of the Psalms. Obviously, every Psalm has its immediate context. 
when it was written. There was a special occasion that led someone to prayer, whether it was David in, in sorrow, crying to God when he was being hunted by Saul, or whether it was Moses, 1400 BC, praying to God in like Psalm 90, or a thousand years later, somebody experiencing the, the exile of Babylon uh, in Judah a Judite who was in exile. And so we see this all over the place. There's all these immediate contexts for each individual psalm, but then somebody had to bring the psalms together in the book as we have them today. There was an editor or multiple editors who put the book of psalms together. And I want you to remember that. It's, it's an obvious truth, but I want you to remember that because the book of psalms was not accidental. It didn't just happen. And so the themes, the, the message of Psalms are not an accident. They're very purposeful. They were put together by an editor who is led by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give us the word of God. And so the Psalms have a particular message for us and the editors of the Psalms put Psalm 1 at the very beginning for a good reason. These, this psalm really is meant to be an introduction to the rest of the book, and, and Psalm 2 as well. We'll talk about that a bit later. But what is that message? If, if Psalm 1 is set, set here at the beginning of the book to give us an introduction, to set our expectations, what should that expectation be? And it's really that the psalms are meant to be a devotional book, a book that leads us into devotion. We see that because the crux of our passage is verse 2. Who is the blessed person? Who is the person who is blessed by God? It's the one who delights in the law of the Lord and on his, he, on his law he meditates day and night. And so we see this theme of delight and meditation on God's law. These two words really need to be held together and it's gonna be a theme of this sermon, how delight and meditation go together. I think that those two words, that's a good summary for what is devotion, delight and meditation. But what does this person, this blessed person meditate on? It's the law of the Lord. So really quickly, that, that word in Hebrew means, is Torah and it can mean a bunch of different things. It can mean simply instruction. You'll hear this in the Proverbs. My son, heed my instruction. In Hebrew, that's just Torah. It could also mean the commandments of God generally. Obey God's commands. But when it's in a phrase like this, the law of the Lord, Torah Yahweh, it means something more particular, more specific. It's the books of Moses. It's the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. That's what the law of God means in this text. And so we're being encouraged by Psalm 1 to delight in and meditate upon the Pentateuch. But again, when we look at the context, what the editors are doing with the book of Psalms, you see that the whole book is actually organized into five books. Like I said, book one is Psalms 1 through 41. And so the, the editor of the Psalms was telling us that this book is meant to mirror the book of Moses. This, this book is meant to mirror the Pentateuch. And so in the same way that we are encouraged to delight and meditate upon the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, we are being encouraged to delight in and meditate upon these prayers. They are leading us to know God. That's what's happening in the Psalms. And so finally, this word meditate. We often think of meditation as, as a silent study. 
But again, the, the Hebrew word for meditation can also be used to talk about a low animal sound, like a growl or like a cooing dove. And so meditation is more like, you ever read something so intently you're muttering to yourself? You're speaking under your breath? You're so engrossed in this material. And then again, this word meditation is held in parallel with delight. The parallelism of the Psalms is so important. We're going to see it again and again throughout this summer. And in verse 2, you see the parallel. The one who is blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And so the word delight and the word meditate are held as these two parallels. They go together. And so we are meant to be engrossed mentally and emotionally with these prayers. They are meant to serve for us as devotional material, to lead us to know and trust and love God the same way the books of Moses do, the way the, the books of Moses share the character of God, the salvation of God, the purposes of God. That's what the Psalms are all about. So we covered a lot of ground. We looked at background and context and some Hebrew words. Here's my point. The book of Psalms was organized purposefully. And Psalm 1 is not just a weird one-off wisdom psalm telling you to read the law. It is the introduction to the whole Psalter telling you that this book exists for your devotion. This book exists to lead you to love and trust your Lord. And so I have a simple application for you. Do you have a practice, a habit of reading and praying the Psalms? The daily office lectionary in the Book of Common Prayer is basically just a, a read through the Bible in a year plan, not a novel idea. But what I think is so fascinating, what is unique, is that we're encouraged to read the Psalms every 30 days. And there's also a 60-day plan, which I think is much more doable, and that's what I try to read. But the wisdom of the church is to make the prayer book of Jesus our prayer book, to be reading the Psalms through in their entirety six or 12 times a year so that we would learn how to pray, so that we would learn how to praise, so that we would grow in our devotion to God. Are you reading and praying through the Psalms regularly? They are these words of beauty, of truth, of goodness given to you by God to set your devotional life free. So I encourage you, read them. Now turn back to the text with me again. We're going to read verses 1 through 4 and see this, this second point of what the Psalms are all about. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away." The first thing we see in, the psalm, in psalm 1 is that the book of Psalms exists for our devotional life with God. The second thing we see is that the Psalms exist to lead us into true happiness. The structure of poetry in the Bible is really important. The structure of poetry, period, is really important. And that's what makes it so unique and such a fun read, is opposed to stories, narrative, or teaching, didactic sections of the Bible, 
the, the structure is so significant. And we see this in Psalm 1, that the first word of our psalm is blessed. And in the Hebrew, it starts with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And the final word of our psalm, we didn't just read it, it's in verse 6, is perish. And it starts with the final letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so it's juxtaposing these two words, bless and perish. To be blessed is the opposite of to perish. And the psalm is teaching you that the whole book of Psalms is helping you know what it means to be blessed and to avoid perishing. And so we need to know, what does it mean to be blessed? Simply, it means to be happy, to be blissfully happy. But not as we often think of happiness. We often think of happiness purely as an emotional experience of pleasure. But the psalmist here gives us this beautiful word picture of what happiness actually is. And he, he compares a tree to chaff. And so we see that real happiness is like a tree planted by streams of water as opposed to dead chaff. Happiness reflects an abundance of life and not death. It really is, to be happy is to have a, a well-being, a wholeness of life, to live life as God intended. The second thing we see is that this tree produces fruit in its season. To be a happy person ultimately is to fulfill your purpose, to have significance in your life. Whereas the chaff is good for nothing, indigestible by humans and most animals. The unhappy person has no purpose, no significance to their life. And then finally, the tree's leaf does not wither. There's an endurance of life. The happy person endures through hardship, whereas the chaff is driven away by the wind, has shaky ground underneath their feet, is not someone of wholeness and endurance. And so we see that the happy person, according to the Psalms, it's not simply emotional, even though that's a part of it, but it's this wholeness of life, this significance of life, this endurance of life. And if your definition of happy is something like that, then happiness is absolutely compatible with suffering and hardship and loss and sorrow which our typical definition of happiness can't, does not compute. It is not compatible with. But if happiness is about having a fullness of life because you're rooted in what is good and true and beautiful, if happiness of life is significance born out of fulfilling your purpose to glorify God, if happiness is an endurance because of the hope you have in God, well, then of course you can be happy in hardship and sorrow and pain and suffering. And so the big question that hits us is, how can I have this happiness? How can it be made mine? And we have to look at the literal side of the simile. Grammar 101, simile compares two things using like or as. The non-literal side is the tree and the chaff, but the literal side is the person who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night, and the wicked person. And so it's a Sunday school answer. Happiness goes with holiness. If you would be truly happy, you must be holy. You must delight in God's law, meditate on it day and night. And what's implied there 
is that you do it. You see this in Joshua 1, where the Lord is giving a charge to Joshua. Now that Moses has died, he is to lead Israel. And he says that he must meditate on the law day and night so that you would be sure to do it. It's like our readings this morning. James 1, the person who reads the law and then doesn't do it is like a foolish person who looks in the mirror to see what they look like, doesn't comb their hair, doesn't wash their face, doesn't change their appearance, but walks away and forgets. Or it's like Jesus' parable, both in Matthew and in Luke. The foolish person builds his house on the sand, doesn't do the word of God doesn't obey it, and therefore the ruin of his house is great. And by implication, the person who builds their house on the rock does God's word, obeys the commandments of Jesus. His blessedness is secure. And so if you would be truly happy, you must be holy. And so once again, I want to draw your attention to this parallelism between meditating on God's law and delighting in God's law. Because again, the word holy isn't used in our text. It's only described. Holiness is described as somebody who meditates on God's law, and the implication is that they obey it, but also delights in God's law. And here's what I want you to know about the Psalms. They are meant to move your emotions. They are meant to pluck your heartstrings. They are meant to cause you to delight in God. There is nothing wrong with emotivism in your devotional life. In fact, it is crucial. So many of us have heard the true uh, teaching that's only half the truth, that our hearts are deceitful above all else, says Jeremiah. And therefore, we should not be led by our emotions. Absolutely true. But many of us have taken that wisdom and said, therefore, I will just evacuate all emotion from my life with God. And that is not true either. You cannot find that in the Bible. The Bible is full of language talking about your emotional life and how important it is that you delight in God. One of my favorite classes in seminary, I've talked about this before, was a class all about Ignatian spirituality. Ignatius of Loyola is the founder of the Jesuits. And there's this, this theme of Jesuit spirituality talking about having hearts that are on fire for the Lord, that are passionately zealous for God. And they have a prayer book of Jesuit prayers called Hearts on Fire. And one of the teachings that, that really sunk into me during that class was that we must fall in love with Jesus and stay in love with him because it determines everything. And here's what I want you to hear in that statement. You choose to fall in love and stay in love. Don't be led by your emotions. Lead your emotions. Lead your heart. That's what the Psalms are here to help you do. The Psalms are this gift, this tool, this prayer book from God designed to lead your heart into praise and love and thanksgiving and adoration and trust and hope and patience. The Psalms are here to move the affections of your heart that you would delight in God's law, that you would obey God's law, that you would be truly happy. That's what the Psalms are for. So turn back to the text with me one more time. Verses five and six. 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the, in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The first thing we see in Psalm 1 is that the Psalms are for your devotional life with God. Secondly, the Psalms are meant to lead you into true happiness, to shape the affections of your heart, that you would love God and obey God. And in being made holy, you'd be truly happy. But finally, you see this kind of scary binary. The Psalms lead us to Jesus because we know we're not holy like we should be. We're not holy like we should be. We're not loving and delighting in God's law as we should. We're not obeying it, meditating upon it day and night as we should. We don't love God like that. And so we hear here in verses five and six, there's two kinds of people. There's the righteous and the wicked. And the righteous are known by the Lord and they will stand upright on the day of judgment. But the wicked, they will perish. They will not stand with the righteous. And so it puts a little fear in our hearts. I'm not holy like I should be. And I see God's binary. There's only the righteous and the wicked. Which am I? And so the Psalms send you looking for holiness, but they also send you looking for mercy, for forgiveness. And the Psalms are no stranger to God's mercy either. It's a key theme. Calvin, in his commentaries on the Psalms, says this about the, the tension of God's holiness and our shortcomings. When uprightness is demanded of the children of God, they do not lose the gracious remission of their sins in which their salvation alone consists. While then the servants of God are happy, they still need to take refuge in his mercy because their uprightness is not complete. In this manner are they who faithfully observe the law of God said to be truly happy. Do you hear that? The happy person is holy, but their holiness is not complete in themselves. They must have God's mercy, God's forgiveness. That is where they take refuge. Calvin defended himself by quoting Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. It's the same key word, blessed. Blessed is the man, but instead of being who delights in the law of the Lord, it's blessed is the man who is forgiven. Blessed is the person who has received God's mercy. And so the Psalms are constantly pointing us forward to Jesus by holding out to us the hope of forgiveness and mercy. You see, forgiveness and mercy are talked about constantly in the Psalms, but the ground of that forgiveness isn't deeply explored. But we know the rest of the story that the forgiveness offered to us by God is through Jesus Christ. I mentioned earlier in my sermon that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are introductory to the whole book of Psalms. Whereas Psalm 1 is the purpose of the Psalter, Psalm 2 teaches us the main theme of the Psalter. And that theme is that the Lord reigns and he has put his anointed one on the throne as king. And we know who that king is. It's Jesus. Jesus is that son of David who is greater than David, 
that king that the people of Israel longed for, that king that our hearts truly long for, the king who was perfectly holy, who was perfectly righteous, who obeyed God's law down to the last letter, who was perfectly happy, and yet he gave it all up so that we could be made happy. He is the king who knew no sin but became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He is the king who set aside his royalty and became like a servant, a servant under the point of death so that we might become royalty, sons and daughters of the king. And so the forgiveness promised to us in the Psalms is fulfilled in Jesus Christ because the son of God the one true son of man who was really holy and happy, who was truly blessed, gave up his blessing so that we could be blessed. And so I want you to see that the whole Psalter exists to point you to Jesus. Bonhoeffer famously said that the Psalms were Jesus' prayer book. And so as you're praying the Psalms, you are praying the same prayers of Jesus. And when you pray the Psalms, we remember that the apostles viewed Jesus as the fulfillment of the Psalms. And so whenever you come to a hymn or a psalm of thanksgiving, you are giving thanks and praising Jesus Christ. And whenever you come to a lament or a psalm of waiting on the Lord, you remember that Jesus first lamented that he was waiting for the hope of the resurrection and now he is near to all those who are in sorrow, who are waiting on the Lord. And when we come to a wisdom psalm, we remember that Jesus is the logos, the wisdom of God, the fulfillment of all wisdom. And we come to a royal, a kingly psalm, we remember that Jesus is the king, the only king who can rightly demand our devotion, who can make us holy, who can make us truly happy. Church, the Psalms are a gift. They are the original prayer book to set your devotions free, to make you holy and make you happy, to lead you to Jesus, your Savior. Would you dig into the Psalms with me this summer? Would I challenge you, memorize some of these Psalms with me and see how it's transforming your heart growing new affections in you for God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Psalms. We thank you that you have given us words for all times, but especially when we have no words. You teach us how to praise you, how to pray to you, how to come to you, no matter what we're feeling. And you are teaching us how to lead our heart, how to lead our emotions into hope and trust, delight and praise and adoration. Lord, would you do a mighty work in our hearts through your word this summer. Deepen our prayer life as we pray the same prayers of your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.